Here's what we're doing. Last three weeks, Michael has been preaching in the Psalms. So in Psalm 146, he talked about what it means to bless the Lord. Psalm 16, the week after that, what it means to take refuge in the Lord. Come under his shelter, under his care. And then last week, he said, hey, listen, how do we respond to how the Lord has revealed himself? He's revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in his word. And how do we, as we seek to press in and know God... We want to do that by how he's revealed himself. And so then how do we respond to how he's revealed? And so this week what I want to do is I want to kind of continue that. All three of those are some aspect of worship, what it means to worship God. And so Psalm 66 is this great worship psalm. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know what the occasion was. We know it was meant to be sung. Um, but it was something that the Israelites, they knew and they sang. And it helps us so much in understanding how can we be people who worship God? How can we kindle worship inside of us? And maybe most importantly, and I think the last few verses of this psalm are some, are some staggering truth that all of us need to hear. And so what I want to do is I want to read the psalm, I want to pray, and then I want to walk through it together. And so if you will... Um, Uh, Psalm 66, beginning in verse 1. It says, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name and give to Him glorious praise. And say to God, How awesome are your deeds! So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God's done. He's awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip? For you, O God, you've tested us, you've tried us as silver's tried, you brought us into the net, you laid a crushing burden on our backs, you let men ride over our heads. We went through fire, through water, yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. I'll come into your house with burnt offerings. I'll perform vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble, I will offer to you burnt offerings of fatted animals with smoke of the sacrifice of rams, and I'll make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I'll tell you what he's done for my soul. I I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I'd cherished iniquity in my heart, that the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he's not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. So if you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, this is a psalm of praise to you, and I pray you'd help us to worship you well, to give you praise, to to shout for joy to you as part of all the earth that does that. 
pray your word would have its way with us and that it would not return void, but rather it would do what you sent it to accomplish. And so we pray this the only way we can. In the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, I'll, I'll start this way. Um, I, 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 Sorry, I keep hitting this. I don't have my thing here. I've got this thing here. and So anyways, or maybe I just think you're asleep and I'm going to wake you up. And I'll do that. All right, so anyways. But I love a great party, um, and um, I'm a I'm a overdo it at a party kind of guy. Um, I'll tell you about the first Christmas party Leslie and I ever threw. We got married on September the 30th. This is uh, back in 1995. Two months later, roughly, we're you know we've gone through Thanksgiving. It's time for Christmas, and we decide we're going to throw this huge blow it out Christmas party. Um, and we're celebrating more than Christmas. I, mean, we, we, I love the time of year, but we were celebrating our you know kind of our new marriage and our in our new um, little home, you know, a little tiny little home in our, um, in our new dog, and, uh, you know, our, just this new life together. And we're so excited, and I mean, uh, I went all out. Um, Leslie will tell you, I, that's what I do. And so I made sausage balls. I made about three dozen of those. We had eggnog, I had a ham, a whole ham. Um, I made 300 rolls, uh, Five or six kinds of dessert. We had baked goods. I did shrimp dip. I did cheese balls, hot chocolate, coffee, coke. Even had hot cider. So much stuff. I mean, you wouldn't believe. We didn't have room for everything. I mean, you know, we literally had stuff for a hundred people. We had invited fourteen. Not only that, we had Christmas music movies queued up. You know, and. Had this little 14-inch TV, and it sat next to our sad little Charlie Brown Christmas tree. And um, but you know we ate, and we and then we put on a wonderful life, and it was wonderful. I mean, it was everything about it was wonderful. And, and there's times that we know. Listen, there's times to celebrate, and there's times for joy, and there's times that we've got to stop and remind ourselves as a church and as individuals that you know what we should be celebrating here. We should be worshiping here. And yet the truth is, can I just say, here's the absolute truth for most of us in here, even most of us who are believers in here. Worship, when we talk about worship and we read these, you know, shout to joy to the Lord. And when's the last time you've done that? That worship can seem like this entirely foreign concept, at least as we read it. We equate worship with emotion. And emotion's good, and I like feelings, and, and feelings are good and can be part of worship, but it is not worship. And, and so we don't know what to do with it. Most of us find ourselves, you know, we just we got the routine of the day. We get up, and we go to work, and then we go home, and then we, and then we go to bed, and we get up, and we do the same thing the next day, and we, and we pay our bills, and we go to soccer practice, and we see our grandkids, and, we, and all these things, and life just seems to be so full and so full of burdens often. And man, we read this about worship and we think this, this feels, if I'm honest, foreign to me. That I don't know what that's like. And I tell you, I think that the psalm helps us. The psalmist is going to help us. I think there's three reasons or three ways in which he, he helps us to know, okay, this is how you kindle your affection. This, this is how... This is how you come into worship that leads to prayer, that leads to the presence of the God who loves you. 
And the psalmist helps us with this. I said, I just want to walk through it. There's like four sections. I'll alert you to the sections. Um, uh, but, but, but look at this. I mean, so you, you get to the, the first four verses. Um, you know, sh- shout to, for, for, for joy. And, and, and it's, it's not this passive expression. You know, it's, there's enthusiasm here. There's this passionate celebration of God. And he's saying, listen, God, he deserves this. I mean, he deserves that kind of praise. He deserves that kind of enthusiasm. He, he deserves that energy from us because, man, his deeds are awesome and his power is great. In fact, it's unmatched. And his enemies, they cower in fear. God desires to be worshipped. Invites us in to worship Him. One old theologian, Karl Barth, he said this. It's so great. He said, Christian worship is the most momentous, the most urgent, and the most glorious action that can take place in a human life. Most urgent. Most momentous. Most glorious. Do you do you know about that? You know, when you see people at a great party or a great celebration, you know, it's party that says, Man, I wish I was there. Kids are great at that, aren't they? I mean, kids they know how to celebrate, they see a party, everything longs to just go jump right into the bounce house or, you know, slide right down the slippy slide or whatever, you know? As adults, we kind of forget all that. And as adult believers, sometimes we move into thinking worship is something that's equated to like board meetings. You know, I mean, we have board meetings about God. And then those are important. Don't, don't get me wrong, but no one looks at a board meeting and goes, man, I wish I was there. You know, we don't have much success when we go, hey, come to our board meeting. You know, everybody's like, no, I'm not, I don't want to do that. Time and place for that time and place for us also to be people who know how to celebrate, who know how to worship, who know what it is to have our hearts, our minds, and our affections, and our lives captured by who God is. Now, one of the things I love about this psalm is that it grounds it in this sort of theological context. It's not just thanks. I mean, it's not just like, oh, thanks, God. You know, I mean, this sort of self-centered, thanks for what you've done for me kind of a thing. It's, it's, it's this spontaneity of, of a real praise, and, and it's this concentration on God and what he has done. But it is not for the things he has done. It is the things that he has done that has led us to concentrate, to focus, to see more clearly the God who's done these things. Because that's what we're worshiping. No, notice, um, well, there's a guy writes about this. He, he, he writes about a scene in the Dead Poet Society. And um, it's a scene where Mr. Keating, uh, who's played by uh, Robin Williams, and if you haven't seen the movie, I, I'm going to totally spoil it for you because you should have already seen it. Um, you can repent of that. Go home and watch it today. But anyways, so he's, he's like this English professor. He's at this prep school. And they're doing, you know, reading intro to poetry in the textbook, and it's sort of this essay about the intro to poetry. And so he goes, starts ranting about this, and he tells all the students, he's like, okay, so, you know, start ripping this out. You know, rip, rip, rip it out. And um, the kids are looking at each other, students are looking at each other like, you know, is this guy crazy? And he begins to say, listen, this is, this is not how poetry is to be read. 
You know, it's not a scale. It's not a, it's not a grid. It, it, it's not to reduce something that is, um, you know, meant for the heart to, to, to a mere arithmetic of your head. So he takes the trash can and he's walking up and down the aisles. And you remember, he's like, hey, this isn't algebra. This isn't, you know, songs on American Bandstand that we rate from one to ten. There are things that are meant to plunge our hearts in the, in the line. I've always loved the line. That, uh, what, what does he say? The depths of our heart to stir vigor in men and woo women. That's what he's saying. Too much of our time, I think, we're spent trying to chart God and figure it out and plan, you know, figure out what God's next step is and all of these things. And the reality is we, we worship and celebrate a triune God whose deeds are awesome who with the Word spoke creation into being. And so we are not going to understand everything about Him. There are things He's revealed to us that He wants us to know that we will spend our whole lives wrestling with and trying to figure out. So much of our time is trying to figure out what God hasn't revealed. Why is He doing this? What's He going to do next? And we forget, this is the God of the universe so desperately wants you to know how much he loves you. And he's, he's wooing you, he's drawing you in. To worship him, to celebrate him, to enjoy him. Well, the, the ways that he does it. So, so look, beginning in verse 5, we're going to see that, that the psalmist instructs the people to remember how it is that God saved them. So this is come and see what God's done. I mean, he's awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. And then he rehearses, he remembers. So you remember that? You remember when our people were slaves in, in Egypt and he called us out and, and drew us out and then we went, we went across the Red, he parted the Red Sea and we crossed on dry land. He saved us. We're his and there's this sense in which he's calling all the nations. Let's come and see. I want you to see what God has done for us. God's famous for saving. It's like this show-and-tell form of worship. Come and see later. He's going to say verse 16. Come and hear. Come and listen. The message is that God's deeds and his power he has exerted to save you. And he means, he means for everyone to be watching. There's these truths. There's like a theological truth in verse 5. Listen, God's awesome. This is how he works on behalf of man. In verse 6, there's this experiential truth, and this is how he saved us. He, he's glorious in my life. He's glorious, Israel, saying, in the life of our nation, God saved us. We experienced that. And then there's this sort of instructional truth that says, listen, and because God doesn't, don't stand against him. It's a bad thing to stand against God, and if you reject him, you'll stand accountable. And he wants them to know the Israelites, listen, they knew their story of salvation. They knew it. And he saved them at just the right time, and he saves us. Paul will write in Romans chapter 5, I told you, that he'll say, listen, you see at just the right time, 
hear this. This is, this is about you. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He did not die for you because of anything you brought to the table. You were ungodly. And you don't love him like you should. In fact, you were born shaking your fist at him. But he saved you by sending his son to die for you. And as a believer, if you're a believer this morning, that's the greatest work that God has done in your life. And there's this sort of call. You know, I mean, we should be people who go, hey, I want you to come and see. Man, I used to be a wretch. I, at, at, at my very best, I'm an idiot. And I spent my whole life trying to do it on my own and searching to satisfy every longing that I never could satisfy. I searched everywhere for what was missing. But you know what happened? God saved me, demonstrated his love toward me. And he, in his sovereignty and his grace and his mercy, opened my eyes and I could see the truth of his son, Jesus, that he sent to die for me. And man, I believed him and my life's never been the same. This story is a little, little story told, little preacher story, I guess. But there's this little boy, you know, and he, his mom sent him to the store to get a, to fill up the pail with honey. Which I, I guess there's a time in the world people did that. I don't know, but anyways, that's the story. So the mom sends him to the store to, uh, with a pail, and he's supposed to get it filled with honey, and he's supposed to bring it back. And his mom said, "Hey, listen, I, you know, you gotta just bring the honey back. Don't be sticking your fingers in it." because um, then it gets sticky and everything like that. Well, so the boy goes, but he can't help it, um, and he continues to stick his finger in it, and, you know, and then he, you know, sucks on his finger the whole time until he gets it all off. Well, there's this old guy who comes up next to him. He says, hey, listen, what do you got in the pail? And the kid says, well, I have honey. And he goes, oh, tell me about it. He goes, oh, it's, it's so sweet. And he's sticking his finger in it. The guy said, well, how sweet is it? He said, oh, it's, it's very sweet. Well, that's, that's not an answer. I mean, how sweet is it? Tell me how sweet it is. The kid says, well, it's very, very sweet. And the guy says, that's still not an answer. I don't understand. How sweet is it? Finally, the boy's exasperated, sticks his finger in, sticks it up to the old adult, and he goes, here, taste it and see. And there's a sense in which, man, that's our life. The salvation, what, what it is that God loves us, I mean, what is that sweetness? Sometimes it's even hard to describe, but we want we want to taste it and see. We want others to taste it and to see. God saved us. Now, maybe you haven't thought about that in a while. Maybe you haven't remembered that in a while. Maybe you haven't just sat down and sort of hit pause on everything else and thought, man, I don't know what comes the rest of this day, and I don't know what comes tomorrow, and I don't know what comes next week. But I just want to remember for a second, I was born into this world as an enemy to God. Because of his love, he saved me. Come what may, I, I will live eternally in his presence. I have been saved. Well, not only that, so we rehearsed our salvation, but I want you to see the other surprising thing, I think surprising that he says. Look at it in verse 8. He says, Bless our God, O peoples, 
Let the sound of his praise be heard. And it's about God who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. And then notice what he says. For you, O God, have tested us. You've tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid crushing burden on our backs. You, you let men ride over our heads. Went through fire, through water. Yet you've brought us out to a place of abundance. Out, out to a wide open space of grace. That's what he's saying. Listen, I, I, I would offer you this morning, I think one of the obstacles... Is, listen, we, I don't think we remember our salvation. I don't, I don't think we sort of relish that enough. I, I don't think we spend en- enough time in our lives periodically stopping and going, you know what, thank you, God, for saving me. And I also think one of the obstacles to us being worshipers and not experiencing what it is to really to know what it is to worship is, is, that, is that we don't know how to rightly see those very, very hard times that come into our life that we don't know how to rightly interpret that, that we don't know how to, from God's perspective, see that in our life. God kept me from slipping, that that he held me securely through all of it, that that God uses these difficult times and, and he draws us to himself through them. He brings us through life in such a way as to make us more like Christ. That's what he's doing. And he brings us down roads, roads that he has ordained for us to transform us. Desires that we become more, we grow into more, into the image that he created us in. You know, there's this sense in which the psalmist helps us. He, you see that he embraced it. You know, that's how you do that. Suffering comes. The sovereign work of God comes in your life. The things you would have never asked for, you never would have put on your wish list, and they come crashing into your world. And so the psalmist, he helps, he, he embraces it. He says, okay, this is what God's doing, and this is what he's done, and I'm not going to run from it. And we'll run to him. We embrace it, and then we acknowledge it. We acknowledge this, this is for our good. God has promised this is for my good. God's always in control. Nothing comes to me that hasn't gone through his hand. And then we submit to it. You know, God, if this is what you're doing, and this is your good, even though if you were to ask me, I would have told you, I think it's terrible, I'll submit to you in my life. Listen, you've heard me say this before. It it is not like the great, awesome, easy, comfortable times in our life that we find ourselves growing in Christ, is it? I mean, we really wish we'd do that. I mean, we wish we would be really great stewards of all the good and comfortable times, but we're actually terrible stewards of those things. We're just not very good at it. We just don't grow very well like that. We, we grow in 
But when times are so hard, when, time, when life comes and seems to knock the breath out of us, we look back on that and we go, you know what? God did something in the midst of that. That you might even say, you've heard people say, I, I, listen, I'd never choose that, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. He held me securely. He didn't let my feet slip. Yes, I'm still walking with a limp. Yes, I'm still trying to work through all this. Yes, I'm still trying to live on planet Earth as a finite human being in all my weakness. But I know this. God didn't let my feet slip. And there wasn't a moment that he was out of control. There's this story this guy tells. His name is Gary Richmond. He writes it in a book called It's All It's a uh, It's a Jungle Out There, and he talks about this Angola giraffe that was giving birth. And he he tells it in the first person. He says, "I was standing next to the zookeeper Jack Battle to um, watch, and in the giraffe, she was standing up, and the calves' front hoofs and head were already visible. And uh, I so I asked Jack, well, "When's she gonna lie down?" And she won't, he answered. Well, but, but her hindquarters nearly 10 feet off the ground. I said, isn't anyone going to catch the calf? And he said, well, you can try catching it if you want. He said, but its mother has enough strength in her hind legs to kick your head off. So I sat there and watched. And soon the calf hurled forth. It landed on its back, and his mother waited for about a minute, then kicked her baby, sending her sprawling head over hooves. Why'd she do that? He said, well, she wanted to get up. Whenever the baby ceased struggling to rise, the mother prodded and gave it a hearty kick, and finally the calf stood up, wobbly but upright. Then she kicked it off its feet again. She wanted to remember how it got up, Jack offered, in the wild. If it didn't quickly follow the herd, predators would pick it off said it's easy for us to view trials as unwelcome intruders in our lives, but they have a way of prompting us to get up, to seek the protection of our Heavenly Father. You know, that's a good question. If, if God ordains all these things, that nothing comes into my life that hasn't first been sifted through His hands, that the ones that love me and hold me and never let me go, the hands that can never be separated from, Paul would say. And how, in what way is this pain growing me or protecting me or drawing me to him? Now listen, that's not, that's not our first response. We're going to be honest with that. Man, sometimes we, we are so overwhelmed by the whys and so overwhelmed by the fears and so overwhelmed by the anxieties. That's when we begin praying, God, would you turn my why into a who? That as I ask these questions, why would you help me to answer with who? And that's you. I can trust you in this. Well, the, um, so what's interesting, the, the last two bits of this psalm come together, and I don't want you to miss it. So in 13 through 15, there's this response. There's this like, okay, God's helped me. He saved me. He sustained me in suffering. And so now I'm going to go offer my life. I'm, I'm going to go offer these sacrifices. I said to God, man, if you get me through this, I'm all yours. 
And so he does in verse 13. I've come into your house with burnt offerings. I've performed my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I offer you the burnt offerings, and he tells how he's going to do it. And here's the deal with burnt offerings, these kinds of offerings. When you went and you made this kind of sacrifice, you went and the, and the offering was entirely consumed on the altar. You didn't get anything back. If you went with the there's other offerings. You went Thanksgiving offering or peace offering. You'd go and you'd give a little and you'd get some back, and that's how that worked. But these these are offerings totally consumed. You don't get anything back, and it's and it's this it's this response. It's this right response. It's what we want to do. We want to come to God and go here, here. My whole life is yours. And that's so good. That's such a good place to be in. And man, we, we can in that moment make this grave mistake in our life at the moment of maybe our most sincere devotion to God. When we begin to offer those sacrifices and offer our life and say, man, all that's mine is yours because it was yours in the first place. For that split second that we take our eyes off God and we begin to look at ourselves and go, hmm, Pretty good worshiper here. Wow. I, I'm not as bad as I thought I was. Huh. I'm a pretty good crap. I'm, I'm pretty good at this. And listen, we all do it. We, we all begin to turn our praise and our devotion into something that begins to steal the glory away from God. And that is why the psalmist immediately will say, not look at what I've done, not take note of this. Hey, God, are you noticing? Aren't you glad I brought all my stuff to you? No. He says this. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I'd cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would have not listened, would, would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God. Because he's not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Now I, I wanna I wanna point something out to you that I hope creates a little discomfort, and then I want to bring what I believe is, is relief, and, and that is this. If you look at this, and so here it is. Man, I'm remembering my salvation. We should do that, stop and do that. so good to do. And then remember how God has sustained us and kept our feet from slipping and, and molded us and, and brought us along and drawn us to him, and, and that should bring praise. And then we say, oh, I want to give my life to you. I want, I want you to have it all. And then, and then, And then we remember it's not about what I'm doing here at the altar. It's about who God is and what He's done. And what the psalmist is saying is, and now what I do is I offer my praise. It is a worship and a remembrance that's led to a, to a prayer that sometimes is a prayer of petition that says, help me. Sometimes it's a prayer of thanksgiving that says, oh, thank you for all these blessings. 
And, and yet it is not about what we've asked for, and it's not even about how we thank God. It has everything to do with the posture as we come before God in prayer. You know, there's two ways people might come to you, all right? You, you might have people in your life, and they might come to you, and, um, and they're in great need. I mean, they have, they have a huge need. They've got these burdens, and they come to you, and they say, Listen, I don't have anywhere else to go. Would you, would you help me? And, and there are some of those people you would go, man, I'd be honored to help you. I'd love to help you. Then we know there are other people that might come to us, and man, they might have a need, they might have this thing, but yet the way they come is somehow repulsive to us. The way they come is somehow like, no, I don't know, I don't want to help you, I don't want to answer your calls. Or, and the difference, is, I think, is two things. There's a... There's a person that comes to you, and you know as they come to you, they're coming to just use you. I mean, they may have done it so often, they, they, they skip all the niceties about it, you know? Then there's people that you come and you go, oh, man, I, I'd love to help this person. And, and this, you know, when things are good, they, they're the kind of people that share, you know, their abundance and their goodness with others, right? I mean, there's this whole different thing. And, and so when we think about coming to God... We're all on this spectrum of people who either use God on one end or have this right posture and stance on the other end, this right standing, this righteousness. You see what I'm saying? Here's how James describes it in his letter. He says this when he talks about it. He says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And then he illustrates it with Elisha. He says, Elijah was a man like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land three and a half years. And he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced crops. And Jesus said, listen, we're, we're, Elijah's just like us, and he was on this spectrum. He was way over here. He was a righteous man. He was right with God. He had a right standing. He had a right stance. He knew how things worked. And the prayer of a man like that the old King James says, availeth much. So it tends to say, if we have a scale of righteousness, that we could somehow know where we fell, the more righteous you are, it seems the more effective or availing your prayers are. But here's the thing. You got this scale in your mind? This is what I think keeps us from worship. We all know who we are, don't we? We all know what's in our hearts. We all know what's in our minds. We all know where our thoughts go to. We all know the junk in our past. You know where we are? We're left with the awful, terrible truth of Psalm 66 verse 18, if I'd cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And you go, well, huh, that's too bad. Because I, 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 I'm not good at a lot of things, but I'm really good at sinning. But does it mean that God never hears my prayers? Here's this great thing. 
the answer would be that he would never hear us because to some degree or another, we all find ourselves uh, uh, cherishing iniquity in our hearts to some degree. We're always sinful. And I think some of you have convinced yourself that, you know what? Yeah, I remember when God saved me, and I know he's helped me through some hard times, and I did feel this closeness to him. I felt I felt his presence then, and, and yet, man, what keeps me from going to him? All the junk in my life, or all the boredom in my life, or all the half-heartedness in my life. And you might think, listen, it is up to me. Get my life together and get my act together and do some right things and get on the, you know, make some vows and some resolutions. And, and, and then if I, if I can clean all that up, then you know what? I can get to a place where God hears me. I, I, I progress on this spectrum of being right with him. And yet here's what I think the psalmist knows. We will never be perfectly righteous. Stand right with God on our own. The the prayer of a righteous man availeth much? It absolutely does. The prayer of the most righteous one availeth much? Oh, it absolutely does. And guess what? You know him. You can know him. The prayer of the most righteous one. Listen to what Romans chapter 8 says. What shall we say then to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring, bring any charge against the elect? It's God who justifies. Who, who is to condemn? And then listen to this. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. The one who was raised and who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. You know what he means? Because you can come to God and he hears your prayers. And you know why that is? It's because the Son of God, the righteous one, the one whose prayers availeth much is seated next to the Father making intercession for you right now. That when you bow your head, that's why we go to God, the Father, in the name of the Son, Jesus, because he's seated at the right hand and he's interceding for you. And you go to prayer, you go to worship, and you go and you come into the presence of God. Jesus is there to go say, he's mine and, and she's mine. He's there to say, when, you, when God sees you, what he sees is he sees me. He sees you through me. And truly, God listens and attends to our voice because he has not rejected us or removed his steadfast love from us. John Newton wrote this hymn and never was put to music. It was just a poem as it was, as it was left stand. Poor, poor though I am, despised, forgot, Yet God, my God, forgets me not. And he is safe and must succeed for whom Christ promises to plead. Man, Bunyan's saying, if I look at myself, here's the deal. I'm hopeless. I am forgotten, but God doesn't forget me. 
And he doesn't forget me because Christ is there at the right hand, always reminding the Father of our right standing. In 1973, there was this song. You know the song, Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. Um, Dawn and Tony Orlando. Well, a few years later, it, it became this symbol. It says, tie the yellow ribbon. It, you know, we welcome soldiers home, or, you know, it was our remembrance for soldiers who were off um, defending us or on our behalf. But when the song was originally written, that's not what it was about. You know, the song was really, it was telling about a man who had been sent to prison, and he served his time, and now he's been released, and he's, and he's, and he's on his way. He's headed home to the bus. But, but what he admits is that the one who used to love him, the she whom he once loved, had every right to reject him because he knew he was to blame. And so he wrote her and he told her, listen, if you forgive me, just tie a yellow ribbon around that old oak tree. If I see it, I'll know you've welcomed me home. And if there's no ribbon, I'll just pass right on by. Well, the miles rolled on. The man's on the bus. He's thinking about the oak tree. When he gets home, will there be a yellow ribbon there? And the song ends. It's just like triumphal ending. And the whole, the, everybody on the bus is with him in this. And they begin cheering. Because they don't see just one yellow ribbon on the tree they see hundreds of yellow ribbons. The one whom he loved, his lover, not only forgives him, passionately welcomes him home. Listen, you might be like that man on the bus. Maybe you're fearful. Maybe you have anxiety. Maybe you think, listen, I've blown it so bad. God doesn't want to hear from me. Maybe you find yourself worried about death or what is to come or what is next. Maybe you sit here and wonder, I want, does God really forgive? Let alone celebrate me? I'm here to say, tell you, His Word reveals, it assures us that God welcomes us home. He welcomes you. He's inviting you. A celebration, a party, the yellow ribbons are there. And you know why they're there? Because his son died for you to bring you home. Can you imagine the party that'll be when we are face to face with him? And he celebrates us. The one whom he sent his son to die for. The one whom he calls his treasure. That's who you are. Listen, if you've never known that before, this morning you can. It's the simple matter of trusting that God, the Father, sent His eternal Son to take on humanity, to take on your sin. The Bible says to become your sin, to die with it, to die for it, and be raised to new life so that He can clothe you in His right standing with God, His perfection. That God does that. It's not anything you do. It's what He's done. You become His. Reconciled to Him. When you trust Him for what He's done through His Son, Jesus, you say, you know what? I believe that. 
And I'm counting on that. To which I would say, when you do that, welcome to the family of God. Welcome, son and daughter of the high king of the universe. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning you'd help us to be great worshipers. It is something that is so foreign to us.